Good evening, and welcome to CNN's Town Hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. I'm Jake Tapper. He is the man at the center of one of the most fateful days in American history, January 6, 2021. And tonight, the former Vice President will lay out the details of that day, along with behind-the-scenes accounts of the Trump presidency, which he writes about in his newly published book, which is entitled So Help Me God. Mr. Pence joins us just 24 hours after Donald Trump announced that he is running for president for the third time. Our audience is here to ask the vice president about issues important to them. The questioners are Republicans and independents and Democrats from the New York area and from Mr. Pence's home state of Indiana. Please welcome former vice president Mike Pence. So we're going to uh, get to the audience in just a moment. But first, I have to ask you, of course, about the elephant in the room, which is your former boss, Donald Trump, just announced that he's running for president. Will Heard you, that. Will, will, you, will you support him? Well, it's great to be here at CNN, Jake. Thank you. It really is. Thank you for uh, bringing together so many great Americans, including I heard some people from my home state. A of lot of them. A lot of them. Here Hoosiers today. in the house. And, uh, and let, me just, let me just say that... Um, you know, it was, uh, it was a great honor for me to be a part of the Trump-Pence administration. I mean, in four short years, we rebuilt our military. We revived our economy. We unleashed American energy. We appointed conservatives to our courts at every level. Uh, but in, in the end, our administration did not end well. And I write about that in my book. But as I've traveled across the country over the last year and a half, one thing I've heard over and over again whether it's at the grocery store in Indiana or traveling around the country, is people want us to get back to the policies of the Trump-Pence administration. They want to see America strong and prosperous and advancing the policies that we advanced that left America more secure and uh, 7 million American jobs created. Um, But the other thing that I've heard consistently is that uh, the American people are looking for new leadership, leadership that will unite our country around our highest ideals, leadership that will reflect the civility and, uh, and respect that most Americans have for one another. You know, once you get out of politics, um, you learn pretty quickly that while our politics is very divided, uh, the American people actually get along pretty well every day uh, and, and treat each other with kindness and with decency and with respect. And And so uh, I think in the days ahead, uh, whatever role I and my family play in the Republican Party, whether it's as a candidate or simply a part of the cause, I I think we'll have better choices choices. than my old running mate. I I think America longs to go back to the policies that were working for the American people. But I think it's time for new leadership in this country that will bring us together around our highest ideals. Would that be you? I'll keep you posted. You'll keep me posted. (laughs) All right. Just just to put a button on this, if Donald Trump were to run and win the nomination, would you support him as the nominee? Well, let me say uh, there there may be somebody else in that contest. I'd prefer more, Jack. Mm-hmm. Anyone um, in mind? <laughs> well, but, you know, I honestly believe we're going to have better choices. Literally everywhere I've gone across the country, I've heard again and again that The American people look at the policies of the Biden and Harris administration that have ignited the worst inflation in 40 years, that have caused gasoline prices to go through the roof, have uh, 
literally, literally weakened America at home and abroad every single day. They want to get back to the policies. But, and, and maybe it's because of my, my uh, Hoosier and Midwestern upbringing. Um, they often say to me that we, we want to get back uh, to uh, treating one another in public life the way the American people treat one another every day. And that's with, with respect for all viewpoints in this country. And, and I have every confidence that we'll produce a standard bearer for our party, whoever he or she may be, that will lead us there and lead us to victory in 2024. Well, your, your talk of civility leads us perfectly into the first question we have uh, from Jesse LaGrosa uh, in the audience. He's an accountant from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. He's a Republican who voted for the Trump-Pence ticket. Jesse? Vice President, thank you for being here. Hi, Jesse. Thanks. Whether you love him or hate him, former President Trump, now candidate Trump, is a polarizing figure who brought controversial issues to the forefront of American politics. How does the country move past the polarization and find common ground solutions to these important issues facing this nation? Well, Jesse, thanks. Thanks for the question. But let me just say it was the greatest honor of my life to serve as vice president with President Donald Trump. I don't think any candidate other than Donald Trump could have defeated Hillary Clinton in 2016. Republican primary voters uh, saw that that formidable candidacy of Hillary Clinton. And I think they knew we needed a fighter, someone that could step forward and help turn the country back to the policies that would make us strong and prosperous and secure. And he was the right man at the right time, and it was my honor to serve alongside him. Uh, But I truly do believe, as I just shared with Jake, that I I think we're moving into a different season in America. Uh, Our nation's been through a lot, Uh, the COVID pandemic, the riots of the summer of 2020, and of course, the tragic day in January of 2021. And, and what I hear people saying more than anything else uh, is that, that they, they want to see leadership that will look at uniting the American people around our highest ideals. Uh, I, I truly do believe that. And I, and, I, and I think it all begins with the golden rule. You know, as I write in my book, the most important decision I ever made was to put my faith in Jesus Christ when I was a freshman in college. The second most important decision I ever made was to ask Karen Pence to become my wife 37 years ago. But for us and for our family, we've, we've always tried to live by the golden rule to treat others the way that we want to be treated. It wasn't always true in my political career. When I first started out in politics, as I write in my book, I let my ambition get ahead of me. I, I, uh, I got involved in one of those negative personal attacks uh, campaigns. But when it was all over, I reflected on what my Christian faith required of me. And from the time 10 years later that we had the opportunity to run for Congress again, we always sought uh, to run in such a way that first demonstrated uh, the decency and our commitment to treat people properly and respectfully about issues more important than us. And then it was about winning. And through my years in Congress, through my years as governor of Indiana, as your vice president. And I've tried to emulate that. And I think um, uh, whether it's me and my family or, or some other standard bearer for our party, I, I believe we're, we're going into a season where the American people are looking for that kind of leadership that, that vigorously debates our issues, stands strongly for them, as I always have, but does so with gentleness and respect. I want to bring in our first Hoosier of the night, uh, Daniela Melosi from 
for, she's from Fort Wayne. Hi, Danielle. Uh, she's a student at Indiana University. She's a Democrat who voted for President Biden. Daniela. Um, yeah, I was wondering, based off of the themes of your book, for you, when was the most difficult moment in your political career to reconcile the competing interests of loyalty, God, and the Constitution? Well, Michelle, uh, good to have you here. And, Danielle, uh, Danielle, forgive me. And uh, clearly, the days leading up to January 6th and January 6th itself was the most difficult day in my public life. You know, I was always loyal to President Donald Trump. He was my president and he was my friend. And we worked together very closely for all those four years of our administration. Whenever we had disagreements, and uh, we did from time to time, I kept them in private. I thought it was important as vice president that I offer my advice and my counsel to the president confidentially, and we did. But I had one higher loyalty, and that was to God and the Constitution. And that's what set in motion the confrontation uh, that uh, would come to pass uh, on January 6th. Uh, because I, I had taken an oath to the Constitution of the United States. It, was, it ended with a prayer, so help me God, which inspired the title of my book. And I was determined to keep my oath. As the Bible says, to keep my oath even when it hurts. And, um, but to do that uh, with someone with whom I'd worked so closely and forged such a good relationship, someone who I'd created a record with that I'll be proud of for the rest of my life, was difficult, but I'll always believe that we did our duty that day, upholding the Constitution of the United States and the laws of this country and the peaceful transfer of power. Let's have a seat, if it's okay with you. I want to, since we're talking about January 6th, I do want to um, take you back to that day. Take a look at the video over here. Um, that, of course, was the news hanging outside the Capitol that day, and rioters were calling for your execution, uh, chanting, Hang Mike Pence. Almost two years later, is it still tough to, there's some of the video of the hang Mike Pence, two years later, is it still tough to see that and hear that? Jake, it, it saddens me. But that day it angered me. I must tell you, when, uh, when the Secret Service took us down to the loading dock, accompanied by my wife and my daughter Charlotte and our Secret Service detail. I was determined to stay at my post. I told the Secret Service that I was not leaving the Capitol. I didn't want to give those people the sight of a 16-car motorcade speeding away from the Capitol that day. But frankly, when I saw those images and when, when I read a tweet that President Trump issued saying that I lacked courage in that moment, it angered me greatly. But to be honest with you, I didn't have time for it. The president had decided in that moment to be a part of the problem. I decided and was determined to be part of the solution. And so we essentially set that aside. I, I collected the Republican and Democrat leadership of the House and Senate on a conference call, and we began to work the problem. They tasked me to reach out uh, to leadership at the Pentagon, to leadership at the Justice Department, to surge additional resources there. And um, thanks to the courage of those amazing Capitol Hill police officers and federal law enforcement, we, we quelled the violence, we reconvened 
the Congress the very same day. And I'll always believe that uh, because of their courage and valor, a day of tragedy became a triumph of freedom. We demonstrated to the American people and to the world the strength of our institutions, the resilience of our democracy. Uh, but uh, those memories, those images will always be with me. So you just said that the president in that moment decided to be part of the problem. And I have to say, as somebody that had been reporting on it for the months leading up to January 6th, I don't think anything happened in that moment that was part of the problem. President Trump had been campaigning uh, in favor of the overturning of the election for months and months and months. It wasn't in that moment, and he wasn't part of the problem. He, he was the problem. Well, look, uh, the, the people that rioted at the Capitol are responsible for what they did. And as I said that day, and I've believed every day since, uh, those people should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. When I saw the images of, of people smashing windows, ransacking offices, and creating the mayhem that ultimately cost lives, uh, I was filled with a simmering indignation. I'd served in the Congress for 12 years. I dreamed from the time I was a little boy, as I wrote in my book, about someday representing my hometown in Congress and to see what was happening there. The first time since 1814 at our Capitol building, I... I just found myself thinking, not this, not here, not in America. And I, I, I hear you loud and clear. Look, there, in the weeks after the election, I had, uh, I had told the president that after all the legal challenges would play out, which the campaign had every right to bring. Sure. I mean, there were, Jake, voting irregularities in a number of states where... Election laws had been changed by either executive action or by the courts. There was never evidence of widespread fraud. I don't believe fraud changed the outcome of the election. But um, the president and the campaign had every right to have those examined in court. But I told the president that uh, once those legal challenges played out, he should simply accept the outcome of the election and move on. Uh, but he was hearing different voices. And frankly, there were... There were some legal experts that, uh, that were allowed on the White House grounds that, uh, that should have never been let through the gate. Yeah, you're talking about Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. I want to come back to that in a second, but I do want to show um, this moment because it was so important and so heartbreaking. This is um, inside the Capitol. This is video of the Secret Service trying to get you and your wife, Karen, and your daughter, Charlotte, to safety. As rioters came within 40 feet of you, we found out later, your family's lives were at risk. Not just yours, although that would be tragic, but your wife's and your daughter's. And I was worried for you that day, sir, covering this. I was worried for your wife. I was worried for your daughter. I'm relieved that nobody was harmed. You, if I were you, I would still be livid with Donald Trump. I would be so furious. And I know you're a measured man. Um, but are you still angry? Well, I must tell you, the president's words and tweet that day were reckless. They endangered my family and, and all the people at the Capitol. And I was angry. But you know, my Christian faith tells me to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
And in the Christian faith, forgiveness is not optional. We literally pray in the Lord's Prayer to forgive those who trespass against us. And in the days that followed, when the president asked to meet with me after he made the right statements to the country, he'd committed to a peaceful transfer of power, he'd condemned the people that rioted at the Capitol. Um, we met and we sat down. And I prayed, I prayed for God's grace to meet that moment and that spirit. And uh, it wasn't easy. And, uh, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm as human as the next guy. And I, I still pray for the president. And I pray for the grace uh, to forgive him and all those responsible for that tragic day. Uh, but uh, I, I truly do believe that we live in a time when the American people ought to be searching our hearts and having more grace toward one another. I mean, it's, it seems like our country is more divided now than ever before. I, even broadcast networks seem to be perceived to be divided along partisan lines, which is why I'm grateful for the opportunity to be on CNN today. I, I just think if, if, if all of us can be more forgiving uh, to one another, we'll... We'll have unity in this country more than we've had in recent years. And, and uh, with that unity, we'll meet the challenges that America faces in the balance of this new century. So you have forgiven him. But it, from what I read in your book and other interviews you've done, it doesn't sound like he ever apologized. And we know from testimony that he gave the impression to his top White House aides that were there when the crowd was chanting, hang Mike Pence, he said something along the lines of, according to testimony under oath, maybe they're right about you. So I come from a different faith tradition that also believes in forgiveness, but it also believes in people seeking forgiveness when they have done wrong to someone. Well, Jake, I don't know what was happening at the White House. I was at a loading dock at the U.S. Capitol building working the problem and doing my level best to help facilitate the arrival of uh, security personnel to quell the violence. But what I can tell you is in the five days following January 6th, I, I made no effort to contact the president. He had said the things publicly that I believe needed to be said, committing to a peaceful transfer of power condemning the violence that had taken place. But when his uh, daughter Ivanka and son-in-law came to my office, as I write in So Help Me God, and asked on that following Monday if I'd be willing to sit down with the president, I, I told them I wasn't looking for a meeting, but if he had something to say to me, I'd hear him out. And I walked down to the Oval Office that you've been to many times, into that back hallway in the small dining room where the president and I had spent so many productive hours working through issues at home and abroad, the progress that we had made for a stronger, more prosperous country. A lot of it had happened uh, over that small dining room table. But I walked into the room, and uh, the president's chief of staff was present, but he quickly left. The president looked up at me, and he asked if uh, Karen and Charlotte were okay. And I said, tersely, they're fine, Mr. President. And he said, were you scared? And I said, no, I was angry. 
I was angry about the differences we had, and I was, I told him seeing those people ransacking the Capitol infuriated me. But we sat for more than an hour and a half, and I was candid with the president about my disappointment. And I must tell you that um, I sensed the president was deeply remorseful in that moment. Now, I know that's at odds with people's public perception about him, but I want to tell you it was true. I could tell he was saddened uh, by what had happened. And um, we spoke through it that day. And I encouraged him to pray. He told me many times that he was a believer, and I told him, well, turn to Jesus, hoping that he would find the comfort there that I was finding in that moment. In the days that followed, I made my way back in that office for another meeting, and the president, days later, was still what I would call downcast. His voice was fainter than I ever remember at any time in our four and a half years together, and uh, um, after we finished talking through some end of the administration business, I, I reminded him that I was praying for him. And he was dismissive about it. But as our meeting came to a close, I stood up. And he was seated at that small table. And I looked at him and, and I said, I guess there's just two things we'll probably never agree on. And he looked up and said, what? And I referred to my role on January 6th. And then I said, I'm never going to stop praying for you. And he smiled faintly and said, that's right. Don't ever change. And we parted amicably as much as we could in the aftermath of those events. We spoke from time to time after we both left office. But Jake, after... After the president returned to the rhetoric that he was using before that tragic day in January, uh, criticizing me and others who had taken a stand for the Constitution of the United States, I, I just determined it was best to go our separate ways, uh, and we have. But I, I truly do believe in, in those moments, um, he was saddened by what had happened, and he conveyed that to me, and... Uh, uh, in ways that um, that I'll never forget. We're going to have more with the former vice president, Mike Pence, after this break. Stay with us. And we're back. We're live at a CNN Town Hall event with former vice president, Mike Pence. Uh, Mr. Vice President, I want you to meet Harrison Reek, he's a student at Indiana University. Uh, he says he's a Republican who voted for President uh, Biden. Harrison. Harrison, good to see you. Good evening, Vice President Pence. Is there anything you wish you would do differently during your vice presidency? For example, mm. in your book, you wrote that Mr. Giuliani told President Trump that the campaign lawyers were not telling the truth regarding the report on election challenges. Mm -hmm. Do you wish you did more to prevent false information regarding to the 2020 election? I remember that day very much, Harrison, and I appreciate the question, and I appreciate you reading my book. <laughs> to me, that was a, a pivotal moment that I'm not sure I appreciated at the time. 
the president's campaign lawyers, uh, people named Justin Clark and others, were telling the president that the legal challenges did not look like they were going to pan out. While there were irregularities that took place in a half a dozen states, that uh, the alleged evidence of fraud simply was not emerging. But the confrontation that happened in the Oval Office that day where, uh, where Rudy Giuliani questioned the integrity of the president's lawyers, saying they're not telling you the truth, uh, set into motion a change that would happen in the days that followed where those outside lawyers replaced the extraordinarily competent uh, lawyers on the campaign. Uh, and it was a fateful decision in that moment. I mean, look, the president uh, made his own decisions uh, along the way. But uh, uh, the American people deserve to know that uh, the president was surrounded by a group of advisors who, as the good book says, were telling him what his itching ears wanted to hear. And those of us that were telling him different were telling him that we have a process in this country where, where states conduct elections, Jack. Jake, uh, they, um, they, they consider in the courts any potential challenges to those elections. The states then certify the elections. And the only role of the Congress of the United States is to open and count those electoral votes. We made that case again and again to the president. But sadly, there were advisors that were telling him different. So can I ask you just a follow up? Because you write in your book that for all intents and purposes, the election was over over on December 14th when the Electoral College uh, voted. Mm-hmm. And after, this is so all of the court cases, all the adjudication, it's all been decided. The states had made their decision. The Electoral College voted. Not all the court cases. But in, in any case, what, what are your court cases are you talking about? Well, there were additional court cases that eventually would not come to fruition until long after the election was settled. OK, but the states had decided that their, right. their elect, the electoral. Yes. OK. But in the weeks that followed December 14th, President Trump continued to push to have states overturn the election. Um, And you didn't say anything publicly until January 6th when you issued your public statement saying that you were going to uphold your duties and you were not going to overturn. There was no constitutional role. And I'm wondering, if you believe that the election was over December 14th, why didn't you make that clear to the American people on December 14th? It's a fair question, Jay. Let me say, as I said in my book which I appreciate you reading. I did. It was essentially over. We have a system whereby under the Electoral Count Act adopted in the 1880s, members of Congress can bring objections and hold debates and determine whether or not to accept or reject Electoral College votes. Members of the House and Senate had prepared a range of objections that were to be debated on January 6th, just as Democrats had done in the last three elections where Republicans had been elected president. After the Democratic candidates had conceded and there was no serious effort uh, to overturn an election result. In, in all fairness, uh, Democrats, some very prominent Democrats, sure. actually raised objections before the Congress, and it was their every right to do it under the laws of the country. Al Gore conceded. John Kerry <laughs> conceded. I mean, it wasn't even remotely the same thing. What I was determined to do was two things. Number one was that we faithfully executed the Constitution of the United States and the laws of the country, including debating potential objections and any evidence that might emerge, which was never to come. 
The second thing was, let me say again, as, as vice president of the United States, I had forged a close working relationship with President Trump. He was not only my president, he was my friend. And I gave him advice in private. And as I recount in the book, there, there were moments along the way where I may have had an impact on decisions that he ultimately had. But I never made those disagreements in public. And I thought it was important as vice president that I don't. And all along the way in December, and frankly, all the way through January 4th, I continued to hope that he would come around. Frankly, as you read in my book, uh, uh, things actually didn't come to a head and become truly contentious between us until the final days and the final hours. And in fact, I'll never forget, on, uh, on January 4th, we had another meeting. He asked me to hear out his lawyers. I'd made it clear that I didn't believe I had the authority he was being told that I had to reject or return votes to the states. Uh, but we spoke amicably, and the president left for the helicopter to go to that rally in Georgia. And he opened up the rally, Jake, as I watched on television, maybe not on this network, the president opened his speech by referring to me. He said something to the effect of our, our great vice president's going to have to come through for us. And then he said, if he doesn't, I'm not going to like him very much. But then he paused and he caught himself. And he said, no, he said, no, the one thing you know about Mike is he always plays it straight. And in that moment, I thought he might be coming around as he had in other moments in our administration with decisions at home and abroad, where at the end of the day, he arrived at a decision. He had a, he had a decision-making process that was very dynamic. And my hope was even in that moment that he would be there. But in the end, uh, he was not. And we did our duty that day. Nothing more, nothing less. I want to bring in another Hoosier, Caden uh, Sunthorsima, a student at Indiana University, he's a Republican Hi, who has volunteered for candidates from both parties and interned for a Democratic state representative. Caden? Mr. Mr. Vice President, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. After the 2020 election, you stuck to your constitutional duties as vice president and ensured, despite the January 6th insurrection, the transition of power, as well as the vote count in the Senate. What would you say to representatives who are still attempting to make claims of voter fraud in the 2020 election? And how can we maintain safety in future elections? Well, first, thank you for the question. It's a really important one. Uh, Election integrity is the very center of our democracy. The the one person, one vote principle is at the very heart of our republic. And, and ensuring that every voter uh, knows that their vote will be counted uh, ought to be of paramount importance to every state in the country because states conduct our elections. Now, I've been pleased in the aftermath of the 2020 election that many states around the country have enacted common sense reforms uh, to restore voter confidence uh, in their states and ensure people that, that will have elections that are fair and, and honest. Um, But I will tell you that one of the takeaways I have from the midterm elections is that in my party, uh, that tonight uh, CNN uh, uh, just confirmed that Republicans will have the majority in the House of Representatives. Um, 
And I'm pleased about that. I was actually there, as I write in my book, the last time Nancy Pelosi handed over the gavel to a Republican speaker, and I'm looking forward to that day in January again. But I was hoping that we'd have more Republicans in the House, and I was frankly hoping that we'd uh, have a Republican majority in the Senate. It was not to be. And if I could find one common denominator, and it speaks to your question, it's that our candidates that were focused on the future, that were focused on the challenges facing American families today, whether it be inflation or crime or crisis at the border or high gas prices, those, those candidates focused on the future did very well. By contrast, I think you could argue that candidates that were focused on the past, that were focused on relitigating the past, did not fare as well. And uh, I expect that's, that's going to be taken to heart by Republicans uh, in the Congress of the United States and across the country. I mean, the truth is that we, candidates have every right to challenge the outcome of elections in the courts of this country and in legal processes established in the Congress of the United States. But I, I think there's been far too much questioning of elections, not just in 2020, but in 2016, where Hillary Clinton said that the election was stolen, said that, uh, that Donald Trump was not a legitimate president for years. We had Democrat members of Congress that used the same language to justify what became a two-and-a-half-year um, uh, investigation uh, into so-called Russian collusion that never happened. So I, I want to say to you, I think, I think both parties would do well to work to reaffirm public confidence in our elections and their integrity. Uh, but I also think uh, the time has come for us to produce leaders in both parties that are focused on, on the future. Okay, so can I ask you just to follow up on that? Because you're talking about the 2022 election, and I think that your analysis uh, is one that is, is generally accurate, that the candidates who were hung up on the election lies of 2020, uh, of 2020 um, did not fare as well in 2022 as the ones who stepped forward and, and, and talked about the future. Mm -hmm. I was, and I know you know better than anyone in a, in a bad way what those election lies can mean in terms of crowds being incited. Mm. I was surprised to see you campaigning for mm. Don Baldick in New Hampshire and Blake Masters in Arizona, who were two people who lied about the election, who defeated, one could say, one could argue, better candidates in the Republican primaries uh, who were future-leaning candidates. Um, why, did you, why did you endorse them? Why did you support them? Why did you campaign for them? Well, you know, I've often said I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. But I'm a Republican. And once Republican primary voters had chosen their nominees... I went out and traveled to 35 states over the last year and a half to see if we could elect a Republican majority in the House and Senate, elect Republican governors all across the country. It didn't mean, as it hasn't meant in the past, that I agree with every statement or every position candidates that I'm supporting in the Republican Party have taken. Uh, but, uh, but I was pleased to do it. And, uh, uh, and I truly do believe that one of the enduring lessons of this election is we need to be the party of the future. You know, one of those candidates I supported was... Uh, Governor Brian Kemp, in a, he found himself in what was expected to be a very divisive primary in Georgia, which broke in many ways along the fault lines yep. of this very debate. Governor Kemp won a decisive uh, victory in the spring, and then he defeated 
perhaps the most formidable Democrat candidate for governor in the country with his reelection. And I think that that election particularly proves the point that uh, uh, for the Republican Party to achieve its potential for us to earn back the right to lead America, we, the Republican Party should be the party of the future. All right. We're going to we're going to take another quick break. Stay right there. We'll be back with more from Vice President Mike Pence. Don't worry, I'm going to come to you next. Welcome back to our CNN Town Hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, Mr. Vice President, let's bring in Eric Sprintz. He's a student at Indiana University. He volunteered for Republicans in 2020. He's a member of the College Republicans Club, and he voted for the Trump-Pence ticket. Eric? Hey, Eric. Thank you for being here, Mr. Vice President. Thank you. So you were at one point an extremely popular figure in the Republican Party, but after the events of January 6th, you lost a lot of support from some people for, in their opinion, quote, not doing the right thing. What would you say to these people, and would you welcome their support back? Well, Eric, thanks. Thanks for the question. You know, when I sat down to write my book, So Help Me God, um, it was a great privilege for me to be able to tell my story growing up in Indiana, a little small town not far from Bloomington. Son of a combat veteran, grandson of an Irish immigrant, the son of a precocious first-generation American who turns 90 years young this month. And I know she's watching back at home. Hi, Mom. (laughs) But, you know, for me, telling the story of my years of service, my incredible family, the opportunities we had to serve in Congress and as governor and as your vice president was a great privilege. But another part of it was my hope was that people that didn't understand how or why we did what we did on that fateful day might better understand it. And it all came back to what ends up being the title of the book. You know, I'd, I put my, uh, my left hand on Ronald Reagan's Bible in January of 2017 and raised my right hand. And I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And it ended with a prayer. So help me God. And I was determined every day that I served as your vice president. And having taken the same oath when I was governor and taken the same oath when I was congressman, to do just that. It was the oath my dad took before they sent him into combat in Korea. It's the oath my son Michael took when he became an officer in the Marine Corps. And so my hope is to those people that might still wonder why we did what we did, um, I hope that they'll read this book and that they'll see that at the very heart of it for me was a determination to keep our oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And um, uh, my hope is over time they'll, they'll understand that we kept faith with that promise. I want to ask you a question because earlier today you um, told uh, uh, Margaret Brennan at CBS that uh, you were closing the door on being willing to testify before the January 6th committee and you had some criticism for them, for the committee. Uh, and the January 6th committee, just before we went on air, Uh, released a statement in response, um, and they write in part, quote, the select committee has proceeded respectfully and responsibly in our engagement with Vice President Pence. They note that they've praised you for for what you did on January 6th. But they go on to say it is disappointing that he is misrepresenting the nature of investigation while giving interviews to promote his new book. I wanted to give you a chance to respond. Well, it's not the first sharp elbow I've gotten on Capitol Hill. (laughs) Look, I, I made the comment today that I, 
I was disappointed when the January 6th committee was formed by Speaker Pelosi and that the Democrat Speaker of the House appointed all the members of the committee. After McCarthy, the Republican, removed the members, his members. But I must tell you, in my 12 years in the Congress of the United States, the idea of a partisan committee on Capitol Hill, a committee appointed by one party, was antithetical to what the Congress is. It did happen before, though. It happened uh, for the Katrina committee when Democratic leaders refused to cooperate. You were actually on Capitol Hill at the time. There was a Benghazi committee that was all formed by Republicans. So it's not unprecedented, I well, and I, I must tell you, I, the, the principle itself was offensive to me. I thought the missed opportunity with January 6th was, was we could have proceeded in a way that was above politics. I mean, in the aftermath, and I make no comparison to 9-11, to the thousands of Americans that were lost that day. But after 9-11, we formed a commission that was above politics. It included representatives of both political parties. They examined every aspect of what had happened and it informed legislation that we would enact in the years ahead that I think contributed to the safety and security of our nation. But the partisan nature of the committee troubled me. But that being said, I never stood in the way of my senior staff cooperating and even testifying before the committee. But as I said today, the January 6th committee Congress has no right to my testimony because under the Constitution of the United States, as vice president, we had two co-equal branches of government. The Congress doesn't report to the White House. The White House doesn't report to the Congress. And I, I truly do believe in defense of the separation of powers and to avoid what would be a terrible precedent, the very notion of a committee on Congress, in Congress, summoning a vice president to speak about deliberations that took place at the White House, I think would violate that separation of powers. And I think it would erode um, the dynamic of the office of president and vice president for many years to come. Certainly understand that argument. I would just put a final button on this thing about the commission is that there was a move to be a, a a bipartisan commission uh, and in fact, Democrats acceded to all of Kevin McCarthy's requests, and then Kevin McCarthy killed it. There was, there was an effort to do that. That's not your doing, that's his, but in terms of that effort for a 9-11 commission. Let's bring in Anita Murphy, a librarian from Du Bois, Indiana. Did I pronounce that correctly? And she's got a Republican. She voted for Joe Biden. Thank you for January 6th, though. I, I appreciate what you did. Thank you. I come from a Republican family, but I have lost faith in the Republican Party. They seem to have leaned way to the far right, and I am a middle-of-the-road sort of person. And I really hate the name-calling and the demonizing that's going on. And why should I have faith in the Republicans to lead this country? Well, thank you for coming to New York City to be here at CNN. It's good to see you. I think you raise a very important question. And in my book, I write about lessons learned in my life. When, when you may have first heard of me, I was a candidate for Congress in 1988. I had, I had hair the same color as this young man. <laughs> Ronald Reagan was still in the White House. And with my young bride at my side, we jumped into politics at age 29. We went at it hard. 
And we got into one of these negative personal attack campaigns that we lost not once, but twice. And in a very real sense, I thought my opportunity in politics was over. But I felt convicted, not in my politics, but in my Christian faith about the way that I'd carried myself. I mean, the Bible says, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But in politics, too often, it's do unto others before they do unto you. But I'd failed the standard that I professed in my faith to live up to. And I, I wrote an, an essay that I, I'm, it's actually in the back of my book. It's entitled Confessions of a Negative Campaigner. <laughs> now, essentially, I wrote it to clear my own conscience, but it ended up in newspapers around Indiana and ended up being a blessing to me. And in the years that followed, when I was a talk radio show host in Indiana, I, I sought to live up to a higher standard. I had Republicans and Democrats on my radio show on a regular basis, and we debated vigorously, as you know Hoosiers love to do, but always respectfully and in a civil tone that's also characteristic of the people of Indiana. When I had the chance to go to Congress, I tried to live that out every day. And as your governor and, and as vice president of the United States, and it's a deeply held belief of mine that democracy depends on heavy doses of civility. I mean, Jake, you've covered Congress for decades now, and they've got these formal rules. Members of Congress refer to one another as my good friend. The distinguished gentleman. The distinguished gentlelady. And it all seems very formal, but, but the roots of it are all in preserving civility in the public debate. Because as a practical matter, I will tell you that if... I've never seen a member of Congress begrudge me my views and my values in a good, vigorous debate. Never prevented us from looking for other ways to work together. But when things become personal, as they have too often on both sides of the aisle, then it makes the possibility of finding common ground very difficult. I mean, in my book, I talk about uh, having been a conservative champion in the House of Representatives, having been elected to leadership in the Congress, I often would say to people, I'm a conservative, but I'm not in a bad mood about it, <laughs> right? And because of that, debates on the House floor against some of the most liberal members of the Congress of the United States never affected my ability to have relationships. You know, one of the high points of my career in Congress, Jake, was when the late John Lewis, a giant of the civil rights movement, came up to me on the House floor and asked if Karen and I would co-lead the annual pilgrimage to mark the anniversary of Bloody Sunday and walk with him across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the heroes of my youth, still is. And to be invited to join one of his right-hand men to mark that historic day was deeply humbling to me. Now, I can tell you that John Lewis and I didn't agree on almost anything, except the fact that he was a great man <laughs> and a good man who was sincere in his face and loved this country. And I sensed he thought there was some of those qualities in me as well. That's why civility is so important and your point is so important. But I believe we're on the cusp of a new season in America where we're going to see a return. The government as good as our people, as respectful and as civil as the American people are and Hoosiers are. 
with each other every day. Stay right there. We're going to be back with more from Vice President Mike Pence. Welcome back to our CNN Town Hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. You write in the book uh, that your son, Michael, there he is right there in his Marine uniform, uh, noted that you and he took the same oath uh, of office, uh, oath of service for him. Uh, and, and that's my new granddaughter. Look at that. Congratulations. And a constant through line in the book is the deep pride you have for him and his service in the Marine Corps. You call him your favorite uh, wingman. And I'm wondering what it meant to you. My as favorite guy. Your favorite guy. <laughs> You're, you're, um, what did it mean to you as vice president, one heartbeat away from being commander in chief, to have a son actually in service at the time? Well, thank you for mentioning our son, Michael. And uh, let me also mention his incredible wife, Sarah, who is a military spouse, also serves every day. In fact, my wife, Karen, spent a considerable amount of time when she was second lady supporting and promoting the interest of military spouses around America. I think Karen called them the hometown heroes, and our military spouses are. And we're grateful to each and every one of you every day. And I must tell you, having my son in the United States Marine Corps and my son-in-law as a lieutenant in the United States Navy, married to our daughter Charlotte, um, was a source of great pride for us. Um, But it, it also, for me, um, helped us always remember that we should deal with the men and women of our armed forces as though they were our own family, because they are. I mean, when we came into office in 2017, I actually heard that the Air Force had grounded a third of their aircraft to use as spare parts to keep the other aircraft in the air. And I couldn't be more proud in those first two years of our administration uh, that we enacted the largest increase in our national defense since the days of Ronald Reagan. Providing for the common defense is the first obligation of our national government and making sure the men and women of our armed forces have the resources they need to accomplish their mission and come home safe was our top priority. So I appreciate you mentioning uh, my son, uh, and our family, including my son-in-law and their spouses. Uh, we couldn't be, couldn't be more proud of them and couldn't be more grateful for their service as we are the service of all those in the armed forces of the United States. I want you to meet uh, Florin Stichu. He's a certified senior planner and Republican from Porter, Indiana, who voted for the Trump-Pence ticket. Florian? It's an honor to meet you, sir. It's an honor to meet you. Okay. Uh, I'm a Hoosier and a first-generation Ukrainian-American. Uh, I have ministered and done missions work in Ukraine since 1994. Thank you. As the war in Ukraine continues, additional support from Western nations is critical to enable Ukraine to protect its people and retake its lands. There are members in the Congress who oppose providing additional military and financial support for Ukraine, many in your own political party and in your own state of Indiana, such as Senator Mike Brown. Do you support additional aid to Ukraine? And how do you handle opposing viewpoints from those in your own party? in your own home state. Well, first, thank you for your ministry for so many years. And and even in these times of war, the difference you're making in the lives of the people of Ukraine. You know, I've said from very early on, it is absolutely essential 
that the United States of America and our Western allies provide the people of Ukraine with the support they need to defend themselves and repel that unconscionable Russian invasion. I've made it very clear that I believe that uh, there's no room in the Republican Party for apologies for Putin and that we need to continue to stay the course and stand strongly with President Zelensky and those courageous fighters who, uh, who just this week, their efforts witnessed uh, the, the Russian retreat from a city called Kyrgyzstan. They're making incredible progress, but we can't flag in our commitment. I'm passionate about it because I've, I've always believed in what we used to, Jake, call the Reagan Doctrine, which is wherever there are free peoples that are willing to fight communists, uh, we'll give them the resources to fight them so we don't have to fight them. But it's a little more personal than that for us. Karen and I were on a trip through the Middle East in March of this year. We stopped on the way back in Poland to thank relief workers in a Christian organization called Samaritan's Purse that were providing relief in the early days following that unconscionable Russian invasion. We actually were able to travel into Ukraine that day, just a few miles, but we came to a refugee center. And I saw a sight that I never thought I'd see with my own eyes. Women of every age, children of every age, with what whatever their earthly possessions they could carry on their backs, all lined up and being processed to leave their home country and to leave their men behind to fight against the Russians. As a member of Samaritan's Purse said that day, he said, I never thought we'd see those sights that weren't in black and white. So they hearken back to images in Europe in the Second World War. I mean, what's happening in Ukraine is unconscionable. And as the leader of the free world, the United States of America needs to continue to stand strong with the people of Ukraine until the Russian, uh, the Russian army is repelled and the sovereignty of Ukraine is restored. I want you to meet uh, Andrea Barber Dansby from Anderson, Indiana. She's an independent who voted for President Biden. Andrea? Hi, Barbara. Hello. In the states that have reproductive freedom as an issue on their ballots, mm -hmm. the majority of voters in all those states voted for reproductive freedom. Freedom in many forms is important to voters. Shouldn't this freedom based on Roe also continue? Barbara, thank you. I, I represented Madison County in Congress for many years. <laughs> Andrea. It's nice to see you. You know, when I think about my public career, and I write about it in my book, the cause of the sanctity of life has been at the very center of our calling. And it really emanates out of my faith. I, I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was a young man. And when I opened the Bible, I read verses like, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and admonishments to choose life so that you and your children may live. And I knew in that moment that the cause of life needed to be my cause. I was a champion for life when I was on the, the airwaves in Anderson, Indiana for years, and then as your congressman, and then as your governor, and as vice president. 
I always believed that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. I just didn't know if it would be overturned in my lifetime. But thanks to three Supreme Court justices confirmed by our administration, the American people have been given a new beginning for life. And in a very real sense, the question of abortion, to your point, has been returned to the states and the American people where it belongs. And I think in that democratic process, I, it, it may take as long to restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law in all 50 states as it did to overturn Roe versus Wade. But however many years I have left, uh, for me and my house, we'll, we'll be standing for life. But not just for the unborn, but I think, I think it's going to be incumbent upon states that enact pro-life protections to also demonstrate generosity and compassion to women facing crisis pregnancies, to support not just the unborn, but newborns in new and in renewed ways. As I said at the close of my book, I, I truly do believe we have an opportunity to demonstrate not just a, a commitment to the sanctity of human life, but a commitment to come alongside and support those that, uh, that are facing crisis pregnancies. And I, I'll look forward to, to being a part of that, bringing principle and compassion to that debate. But because of the Supreme Court's decision, the debate has now returned to the American people. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll be a part of that in the cause of life. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, let's bring in Pastor uh, Donnie Willis from Westchester, New York. He's a Republican who voted for the Trump-Pence ticket. Pastor? Mr. Pence, thank you for being here. And I'm not sure whether to direct my question to you or Mrs. Pence, but it's one concerning family. Um, you and Mrs. Pence have both had very successful careers while raising three kids. I'm a dad of three as well. What is one piece of advice you would offer to parents who are attempting to balance the priorities of serving others mm. and spending time with their families? Well, Pastor, thank you. And thanks for your ministry. and Such a thoughtful question. And thanks for rightly assuming that uh, Karen would have a better answer to that question. She is, uh, <laughs> my wife is a miracle worker. In the course of our public career, we've moved 18 times and uh, served our state, served uh, People of Indiana serve the nation. And all along the way, she's, she's created um, uh, a closeness in our family that continues to this day. We were on the phone with our daughter, Audrey, before we came over to CNN tonight, getting some last-minute advice from her. In some of the momentous times that I write about in my book, um, I can tell you we always turn to our kids. And any decisions that we make in the years ahead, we'll, we'll hear our kids' counsel. My best advice uh, to anyone that leads a busy life, which is true of almost every American these days, is go home for dinner. I used to say that to members of Congress. Vote right and go home for dinner. Because for me, I, I, never had to, I never had to have people encourage me to want to excel. I know I seem a little low-key, but I'm actually a very competitive person, right? But it does take discipline to put your family first. 
And I would say to anyone here and anyone looking on, particularly in those years that your kids are home, there's maybe nothing more important than them knowing that mom or dad in their busy lives are going to shut the computer, set down the phone, and sit down at dinner and just hear them out. I think that dinner table has been a source of incredible strength in our family. And when we all gather for the first time in three years this coming Christmas, um, because of deployments, our, our son and our son-in-law were gone for much of the last several years. But we'll all be back together. We'll all be around that table. We'll be breaking bread. Uh, we'll be saying our prayers. And uh, my best advice is just go home for dinner. And uh, my suggestion or my observation is they're going to have a big topic of conversation at that Christmas dinner. And we're going to talk about that uh, when we come back. We're going to have more with former Vice President Mike Pence after this break. Thank you. Welcome back to our CNN Town Hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. I want you to meet James Gong. He's a software engineer from New York City. He just witnessed the launch of the Artemis One moon mission. He's a Democrat who's volunteered for the party and he voted for Joe Biden. James. Hi, James. Mr. Vice President, thank you for coming to New York. Thank you. Uh, this morning, NASA launched, uh, successfully launched uh, the historic Artemis One mission, uh, bringing America back to the moon. Uh, as Vice President, you led the, recre- the reestablishment of the National Space Council. And I know the Artemis program was a big focus. Uh, what do you think the role America should play in space in the coming decades? And how can we continue bipartisan support for our nation's great space program? Well, James, thank you for the question. I, uh, I tweeted about Artemis One this morning. I couldn't be more excited. I want to send my thanks and appreciation to to NASA and all the great companies that worked with them to send that extraordinary rocket uh, on a path around the moon, uh, really setting the stage for uh, uh, sending the uh, next man and the first woman uh, to the moon in just a few short years. I appreciate you bringing it up because um, I'll never forget the day that President Trump asked me if, on the campaign trail that if, that if we won the election, would I want to lead the National Space Council as uh, as vice presidents had done in the past. Now, what he didn't know was that the only committee I ever asked to be on in Congress was the NASA subcommittee. What he didn't know that Karen and I had taken our kids when they were little to vacation at Cape Canaveral just to see the rockets. Um, And I'll never forget just saying to him over the phone, would I lead the Space Council? Would I? (laughs) And we went to work. And I would tell you it was bipartisan work. Because, you know, for the longest time, we'd grounded the space shuttle, and we were literally hitching a ride with the Russians to get back to the International Space Station. And when we came in, we were determined to put America back in the lead in human space exploration, to get out of low Earth orbit, to go back to the moon and on to Mars. And working with NASA and working with the incredible space entrepreneurs in this country, we, uh, we set in motion the processes that'll do just that. And and I must say, I'm, as I said at the top of this broadcast, I'm, I've got more than a few arguments with the Biden administration. Uh, but I'm truly grateful that they've continued to stay on course uh, to return Americans to the moon. But I must tell you, that day that we were at the Kennedy Space Center, 
the president, Karen, and I were watching the, the day in 2020, in the midst of that pandemic, when for the first time in 10 years, American astronauts returned to space on an American rocket from American soil. And I'll never forget, you can see the picture in my book, the president and I were standing very stoically. It was an important moment in the history of American space exploration. But my wife had both fists in the air. <laughs> and I think she captured the enthusiasm of Americans. Look, America needs to lead in space, uh, not just for the advantage, not just for our security, but because we need to carry our values and the values of freedom into space. And I have every confidence that we will. So um, you mentioned uh, that your family is going to be together over Christmas. Yeah. And I know that, that you have said that you're not going to make a decision uh, about your career uh, and, until after there's some prayer and family huddling uh, over Christmas. You write in your book, and I actually uh, knew this already, that in your West Wing office you had uh, portraits of four former vice presidents on the wall. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Calvin Coolidge. Now, I can't help but observe that of those four vice presidents, all four went on to become president. So I know you're not going to announce your candidacy this evening, but do you think you would be a good president? Well, that would be for others to say. Let me just say, when we, when we gather back in Indiana this coming Christmas, uh, we'll, we'll approach that decision in the same way we've approached every decision over the last 20 years in public life. You know, my daughter Charlotte still wrote the best book about our family. It's entitled Where You Go, subtitled Life Lessons from My Father. And she captured the story of how we made our decision to run for Congress that third time, Jake. As I mentioned, I lost those first two races. I write about the lessons learned and so help me God. When the time came around, I'll be honest with you, it was a difficult decision to decide whether or not to run for Congress again. We had to sell our dream home. We had to move our kids back to my hometown. We had to spend all of our savings and risk it all again, entering a campaign that we'd lost twice in the past. But Karen and I and the kids all went out west. We liked riding horses, and we were at a ranch celebrating my 40th birthday and Karen and I had gone back and forth over the decision. We were praying about it. We were talking through it. We were discussing it even with our younger kids about changes that may come in our lives. And as we stand, stood in, on what was called Chimney Rock in the Teddy Roosevelt National Forest, we looked down and we saw these, these two red-tailed hawks that were pirouetting up from the valley floor. And they were simply being lifted up on the airwave. They weren't moving their wings at all. And I looked at my wife and I, I just said, you know, those, those two hawks are us. And she looked at me and she said, well, then we should do it. But this time, no flapping. <laughs> just like those birds. Charlotte tells that story in that wonderful book that she wrote. And for us... Whatever decision we make, it'll be out of a sense of calling. It'll be out of a sense of uh, trying to discern whether it's a time that uh, uh, we can spread our wings again and, you know, let the Lord and the American people take us wherever he wants us. But uh, 
more than anything else, we'll, we'll respond to the calling that we have in our lives. And I'll always be grateful for the opportunities that I've had to serve the people of Indiana and to serve all of you as your vice president. And I want to thank you all for that honor from the bottom of my heart. Does Karen want you to run for president? <laughs> I'll let you ask her. Thoughts? No comment. My last question for you, sir, is if you ran, do you think you could win? Do you think you could beat Donald Trump and anyone else running? Well, if we, if we entered the race for president, I wouldn't be thinking so much about who I was running against, but what I was running for. You know, the Bible says without a vision, the people perish. And I truly do believe that we spend too much time in politics talking about the other side and not talking enough about what our vision is. And I, tr- I believe that the success we had in the 2016 campaign was for all the contention in that can- campaign, the American people still heard a commitment to rebuild the military, to secure the border, to cut taxes, roll back regulations, unleash American energy, and appoint conservatives to the courts. In the rallies that I stood before, and I always told people, if you want a large rally, you send Donald Trump. If you want a small rally, you can send me. <laughs> but it was always the same. People were animated not so much by personality as they were by a vision, by policies. Uh, And I truly do believe that those policies will carry, whether we're the standard bearer or not. I think the difference for for any candidate will be whether they offer a compelling vision to the American people, a vision of uh, putting back into practice the policies that left our country stronger and more prosperous after four years of the Trump-Pence administration. But also, as I said at the top of this program, I think the American people are looking for leadership that can unite our country around our most timeless values and ideals and demonstrate the kind of civility and respect that Americans show one another every day. And uh, so we'll take time at the end of the year. We'll, we'll give prayerful consideration to what role we might have. But uh, I promise you, Jake, I'll keep you posted. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> we will uh, we'll stay in the fight uh, for our values and do everything in our part um, to strengthen uh, and serve the country we love. So help us God. Mr. Vice President, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We want to thank our audience for being here, especially the ones who came all the way from Indiana. Thanks for your questions. AC360 starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.